You're listening to Out of Nowhere, a series featuring emergent brands with somewhat unexpected origins. Your host is Justin Watkins of Native Digital, a marketing firm specializing in brand messaging and performance media. Let's jump in. Climate change is a problem that all other problems report to. And I had somebody else from later in my life help me figure out how to phrase that in that like tight wording there. And it's not because those other problems aren't important. It's because they just don't get any additional time on the clock if we don't mitigate the worst effects of climate change. And, and looking at the Dust Bowl and the great hunger in China where people like in the U.S., people were people were trading rabbit's feet and seashells in exchange for food supplies during the Dust Bowl. And um some of the regulations around the, the cryptos dealing with today are a result of the Dust Bowl. We're like, no, you can't create currencies that compete with the U.S. Uh, dollar, etc., and so on and so forth. And so, looking at some of those like places of like, whoa, it was really bad, and that was uh, some climate impacts and poor land use planning, etc. Same with the Great Hunger in China, to use a, a less Eurocentric example. Millions of people died in that just due to malnutrition and due to some drought and some, some climate problems and some poor land use planning, all of which conditions exist for today in a much more severe way with climate change. And so as uh, my, my North Star very quickly became like, okay, how do we mitigate the worst effects of climate change so I can give everybody else on the time uh, on, that's working on other problems more time on the clock, problems that we could all agree on. We'd love to see a, a, a bigger, brighter, uh, more inclusive society. And um, there's all kinds of things in healthcare and in, in, in environmental justice and other places. But again, like if people worried about where's my family's next uh, meal gonna come from, they're, they're not going to be necessarily as focused on upholding the bastion of democracy um, or, or other things. There's a there's a hierarchy of needs there. And so I think that that very much like set my North Star very early on. I love your framing of and how you approach that, because there's so many different problems to be tackled. Um, and you I love your framing of how do I put time on the clock for some other people who have core competencies other than mine? to solve these really tough problems, but I can do my part. I can do, we, you know, we can build a team that helps on the mitigation front. So how did that influence uh, sort of the initial sort of conviction and insight that you had for MAST? Yeah, well, so I mean, I, I think like there was a long, there's a long lead in from great high school student to founding of MAST, but the, the cliff notes are effectively everything I, I, I focused on after that was focused on sustainability, uh, U.S. Green Building Council, Vestas Wind Energy, Insect Protein, um, built a company out of Bogota, Colombia, uh, and that was acquired and built that further in Canada. And then leaving that company was really focused on how to like remove carbon out of the atmosphere in, in a way that is that was truly scalable. Um, and this is uh, 2014, 2015, and kind of looking at that and uh, again, like different people are coming from different with different skill sets. I'm not I'm not coming out of this with a chemical engineering degree. I'm not coming at this. So I, I had been part of a very large um, afforestation project in the northeast of Colombia. Consulting team of twenty, building off of the work at Las Gaviotas, uh, which had reforested about I think twenty thousand acres or something around that size, and had seen some of the like. These are these are these are planes. Uh, they had um, over time received so many lightning strikes that um, uh, you know over the geological history. This is not just sort of like 
over a year or two, but like over the geological history become plains, they had reforced that in a really significant way and done a lot of like the building of their own equipment and automation, largely with tractors because it was flat terrain. So it was looking a lot at like, okay, well, what are the things that, um, you know, what does automation look like in my home country, the U.S.? Uh, uh, coming from Oregon, like, I was like, great. Like, what, what, where, where, what does that look like? There must be a lot because I can see all this cool, really cool automated logging equipment. Where's the, where's the reforestation? And it just wasn't there. So spoke a ton with that community, pinged anyone in my network I can get in touch with that would talk to me about their challenges in the industry. And, and in some cases, like there were some people who were already on board and they were like, ah, oh, I've been waiting for somebody with drone backgrounds to come and talk to us and tell us like what we could do. Like, where have you been? They were almost like, they, they were clearly the early adoption side of things. And this is 2015, 2016. Um, this is 3DR is uh, the leader in the drone space. DJI is just coming onto the scene, et cetera. And so really what we were seeing is that like a lot of the mountainous terrain is where the forests were in the Western 11 states, because that's the land you can't convert to cities, ag, suburbs, et cetera, very easily. So a lot of folks running up and down mountainsides planting trees and burning a ton of calories in doing so, not super efficient, not accessible to tractors. And so drones, new in the space, uh, what could we do there? So that's really where we got our start on focusing on how could we make that part of the business more uh, more scalable so we could do more faster. Yeah, that's great. So what are the instances and, why, and how did you get to post wildfire? Uh, there's a lot of different ways we could uh, approach reforestation. Why post wildfire? We we looked at it in the in the sense of very much of like what what where where's the screaming need? Like there's a, an old adage of like is this a candy problem or is this an aspirin problem? Meaning like mm -hmm. candy's a nice to have, aspirin is like no, I will pay you money to give me drugs to make me feel better. Um, and uh, this like wildfire in that in that case like the the timber industry um while the supply chain is vastly overwhelmed and we didn't know that at the time in 2015 and 2016 um we looked at it and wildfire is where the timber industry had no plans it had multi-year lead times it had a severe, severe problem and a lot of the like other problems that would normally be encountered by utilization of drones to do reforestation which we've uh we've like significantly evolved our product from um, would be uh, would be a, a lot of those barriers were removed. So that's really where we well we got started in post wildfire. And then there is a lot of uh, there the I would say that you know now today a lot of our case on why it's so important to be vertically integrated to utilize carbon removal credits to provide landowner solutions is because the amount of carbon that is released in the wildfire versus all of the policy wins is, is vastly disproportionate. Um, so something, there's a nice ecosphere paper that was in the LA Times, something like 120 million plus tons of carbon was emitted in the 2020 wildfires in, in California alone. Well, what are the, what are the wins from policy in changing electrical generation, vehicles, all these other things? 18 years of policy wins in California in reducing emissions was a total of about 65 million metric tons. So one year of wildfire was nearly double the um, the the policy wins savings. And so 
I think from that perspective, we look at that and go like, oh, wow. And then I think the other thing that like we very much would like love people to walk away from this conversation with is when, when a lot of the like, like, oh, well, it'll just regenerate. And I think we've now started to see uh, in the in multiple papers uh, that have come out over the last couple of years that no, actually, like, like, yeah, it used to regenerate. It used to be a 95% probability, but now we're seeing that drop to 40 to 60, 70%, depending upon the ecosystem and the trees. So I'm like giving very high level answers here. And so if we just go with like a let it burn strategy, like, well, what's going to come back, like may not be forest that capture that recaptures all that carbon. And it may be invasive species is probably the more likely now. So scotch broom, Himalayan blackberries. Anybody who's seen a vacant lot, a bunch of blackberries knows that like, yeah, nature's not just going to sit there and hang out and like wait for, for humans to come by and do something like stuff's going to grow there. And those invasives don't retain moisture through the dry seasons, the summers, the way that natives do. So they are much more likely to burn. So it's almost guaranteeing future fires by not reforesting. But then where are all the trees going to come from? Where does the seed come from? And there's all this whole stack of problems that we started to unravel as we started from this one simple, like, people expend a lot of calories running up and down mountainsides to, oh, wait, hold on, we have this huge increase in wildfires to, oh, wait, now, like, forests aren't coming back. Oh, shoot, like, not only are forests not coming back, but the supply chain relied on forests having a 95% regenerate. Now that's dropped to 40% in some places. And, oh, shoot, the supply chain's overwhelmed. So that's really kind of like a lot of the, like, you know, a lot of VC communities talks about, like, loving problems and then figuring out the solutions, like, there's a we we have loved this problem and we have developed and found a lot more problems and we have like really focused on great now what's our product offering to solve that problem for a landowner who's specifically like you know what it burned I'd like more forests like I'd like my forest back now uh, how do I get there let me uh, what you're talking about kind of reminds me of my introduction to mast um, and I'm gonna this is gonna be overly simplified but uh, when I was introduced to it. I was like, oh, great, reforestation. Oh, there's technology aspect. Very cool. And then I saw the post wildfire and I thought, oh, then like that's when like without knowing numbers, just sort of common sense for me was, well, this is getting out of control. So somebody's going to have to do something because the wildfires are out of control and we can't lean on Mother Nature because we've messed with Mother Nature and it's not healing itself the way it probably used to because we've messed up and messed it up. Now, that's probably my... I don't know if realist or optimistic view of like, oh, good, we're doing something. I could also, I can imagine a person who would say, wait, why do this? It's just going to burn again. Um, why even take the effort to do this? But what if you could do it in such a way where uh, it prevented the likelihood of another burning, right? And that's something you guys do. Is that correct? That that is correct, yeah. Um, and and to to kind of give the analysis here of like, yeah, humans came in and messed it up. Well, uh, it's talked about as like we've done a century of fire exclusion, which which actually like it seems kind of logical. Like, if there's a fire, we should probably put it out, right? Well, okay, yes, and like fire is part of the natural ecology of forests, so it has a role. So if we follow the Smokey the Bear, like, you know, put out the forest fire, 
well, what happens? Well, if we don't allow low severity fires to go through and clear out a lot of the underbrush and fuels and things like that, we end up with, instead of forests that are pretty broadly spaced with trees that are far apart and not a ton of just like any spark will light everything on fire, we end up with forests that are trees like a couple feet apart uh, they're super dense. You can't walk through them. They're not great habitat. Um, and oh man, did those, do the, instead of it being 10, 20, 30 feet apart or something like that. So it, the fire has to do a lot of work to spread. Oh, like the fire on one tree is licking the bark on the, the fire on the next tree. So like uh, we, if anyone started a fire at a campfire, like they understand like, yeah, get the, get the two logs close to each other. So density has played a role and um that century of fire exclusion has led to really really like tinderbox forests that are um much more likely to burn and not just burn low severity where trees can in many cases survive but burn a high severity where that is where the that is what's causing a lot of the decrease in the natural region is high severity burns like low severity fires they go through and especially across the surface of the soil, they're a lot more like a creme brulee and the seeds that are stored there uh, are much more likely to regrow. Um, and uh, similarly, with you know, seeds are also stored with conifer trees, with, you know, cones, um, uh, the seeds there, the, uh, the top of the trees. And um, if the fires are high severity, they burn all the way up through and the tree is just completely black, no needles left, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that high severity, that low severity burn. You might see uh, the big bushy middle part of the tree burn, but the tops of the trees are still alive and that tree lives. Um, and so I think that like we look at that and we look at how the fire management has changed over time. And that's really what's led to a lot of what we have today. Um, and I mean, just to put this in, in an anecdotal perspective, like Tom Porter, Cal, California's uh, state fire chief was out there uh, on 60 Minutes in 2020 saying like, look, in my career, it used to be like a 10,000 acre fire would be this like career fire, meaning like once in a lifetime, a, a wildfire fighter would see something that big and they'd, like they get a hoodie and like have been really proud to have like assisted the community in fighting that fire because it was so big. And obviously, like that's no longer the case. Like August Complex fire in 2020 was a million plus acres. We got fires up in Alaska that are a million plus. Uh, Canada's right now are 20, 20 million acres. Um, and what we've seen as far as the evolution of wildfire and just to not pick like cherry pick and be like, oh, it was a bad year. The 10 year rolling average of what burned from 1982 to 1992 is around 2.5 million acres. Today, we're looking back 10 years. So again, 10 year average, uh, we're looking at about 7.5 million acres. And that is about this, that 5 million acre delta is about the size of the state of New Jersey. So that just gives people a sense. And obviously in some years it's gonna be huge because it's an average and other years it's gonna be a little lighter. But um, there, there's there's no doubting or, or challenging the data that like we are seeing increased fires on size and also because of the century of fire exclusion, increased uh, fires on uh, severity. And so what we do when we go out there is uh, we are targeting a much lower density in the reforestation. Um, and we could talk about the full like kind of all of the work we do but um, the we're we're targeting kind of like a 200 trees per acre, whereas you might see in the Northwest uh, 300 to 400 trees for uh, timber company uh, target density at sort of year 25. 
uh, for the Forest Service, which really struggles with budget to do a lot of the thinning and a, and a public that is suspicious and in many cases very rightly so about any thinning operations being a cover for logging and clear cutting, they may see 700 to 1,000 trees per acre. Um, and that's like real dense because we haven't, you know, we don't let the forest fires go through, but then we also don't allow any logging or thinning because there's no, a lack of trust. And so then it's just a real choked uh, setup. Um, and I, a lot of the timber companies very frustrated with the Forest Service on that regard. But at the Forest Service, the Forest Service has a lot of complex stakeholders that are very, you know, there's a really difficult conversation on trust building that they that they're they're challenged with. So the, that's kind of the lay of the land there. Yeah. Speaking of trust and complex stakeholders, you the technical innovation that you guys have is is a feat in itself, right? Like you have found a need, you have found a way to bring innovation where other people were in some cases maybe waiting for it, but nobody was acting. You guys are acting. So that's one side of it. But how do you fund all of this? And the funding mechanism you guys use is carbon markets, which is a whole other topic of like trust and stakeholders. I would love for you to shed some light on it because there's been a lot of conversation. Um, it's probably been a little bit light on perspective and facts at times. It's a nuanced conversation. It's not, it's not good or bad. It's, it's nuanced. Let's, let's dive into a little bit of nuance. Last time we <laughs> talked, you mentioned there's 170 different types. Like there's a lot more to this than people realize. Yeah. Well, and I am appreciated there in the sense of like, the, the the easy and simple, if you watch like a John Oliver or you watch like a Guardian or a, and, and you see what the, the covering on, on Vera um, or you listen to Dr. Volz and, and uh, Joe Rom, who's uh, under Michael Mann at UPenn, is like uh, it, it's there's kind of a discussion. And I, and I think that the like it's discussed as if carbon credits are this one crediting system. And that's so frustrating to us because there's. As you, as you noted here, 170 plus types of carbon credits, um, according to Ecosystem Marketplace, and coming from 100 plus countries. And so to talk about them as like, as if they're like this one thing is like really, really uh, frustrating because there's absolutely carbon credits out there that are not moving the needle on climate change. And like, that's a bummer. It really does create a, a drag on other actors who are trying to be out there and do good things. But like to really drive this home, like I, I would say that it's it's very similar to some of the like discussions on lending money at interest. Um, uh, the, there, there are ways that you can do it that are really perverse and a drag on society. Payday loans, super high interest interest traps that people can't get ever get out of. And in fact, like the you know the simplistic way is well, lending money and interest is is bad. It's evil. No one should do it. And there are at least three major religions that took that exact approach. Uh, and if you you go back and look at it, I always say this word wrong, but the like the charging of uh, usury is like one of the seven deadly sins in like 17th, 14th century paintings and things like that. And um, it's a really simplistic way of like, well, things are either good or they're evil. Um, this is coming at it from a place of, I think, like very much like there is a lot of nuance. And where does the nuance lie? Like we can kind of go through the taxonomy here of carbon credits like there are compliance credits. So for everyone who's like, we should tax oil companies, like, well, in some states like California, we absolutely are. And that's what a compliance credit is. And then there's a voluntary um, market. These are folks that are trying to catalyze 
technologies that we need that um, will go out there and help us remove carbon out of the atmosphere because we've already emitted so much that if humans were gone tomorrow, we would, uh, all of our ecosystems would go through the effects of climate change. We need to both decarbonize, stop emitting, but at the same time, we need to be pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. We need both. Um, and if we look at like inside of that voluntary market, that's where like the John Oliver, the Vera and others said, which is that like John Oliver hit on one system, the Guardian article hits on another system. And these systems are, are, are largely coming from avoided emissions. And this is protection of forests and not cutting them down. So, but the, the challenge here for the public, who I think is suspicious and probably rightly so, is like there's a counterfactual that has to be proved where, like, I promise I was going to cut down these trees, but now I've been paid this small amount. And so I'm not going to cut down these trees. So, but then, like, well, maybe does that mean I'm just going to go cut down trees elsewhere, et cetera, and so on and so forth? And so there's all these com complicated questions around that, but it did provide a way for people to say, hey, we're doing something. Because obviously, like, we don't want to see the forest cut down because they're a carbon storage sink. So, like, that's not good. Um, but is that equivalent to a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere? Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with that, and rightly so, especially at, like, is that really worth, like, a dollar, two dollars, three dollars? Like, I'm suspicious if I'm at the grocery store and somebody's like, hey, you want to donate your change to, like, end world hunger? I'm like, well, that's, I mean, I'm happy to donate my change. Like, please do. But, like, I'm not... I'm not convinced in the value prop that that's going to end world hunger. Um, and I think a lot of those campaigns have revised and, and focused on different things. And similarly, we see the same thing with carbon. So where do we sit? We sit within removals. And whether you're coming from the tech community that is like, we need direct air carbon capture, or whether you're uh, coming from like the United Nations and some of that community, which is like, it's nature-based only, and that can come from forests, that can come from oceans, that can come from uh, a number of different systems, soil and agriculture. There, you know, pick your pick your favorite Avenger here in the lineup. Like there are multiple ways in which we can do carbon removal out of the atmosphere. And I don't know that some of those um, some of those folks who are deeply skeptical of carbon removal cuts have like looked at this next wave of technologies that are coming online. And that's where we sit. We do a hell of a lot of work after wildfire exclusively with uh, a landowner to help them solve the problem. How do we get forests back? The additional additionality is very clear. We only do high severity. We, we remove all the stuff that would be, all the acres that would be natural regen. That's part of the methodology we follow under Climate Action Reserve. And then we provide a number of different assurance systems. Um, and But the takeaway here, and we can, we can get into those, um, the takeaway here is that like there is not enough money to reforest without carbon removal credits. And when we look at like why did carbon removal credits start at all? Well, one of our biggest successes in the environmental movement is in the ozone layer. Like we don't hear a lot about the like whole ozone layer because uh, there was a market, it was created, and um, there were credits, credit systems for CFCs, carbofluorocarbons. And it was a success and it, and it utilized the, the private market to incentivize action. And so there's, you know, variations on a theme here that now can exist for the carbon removal credits. So for people who are very deeply suspicious of this, I mean, my challenge to them uh, uh, is, is the following, which is if we don't believe in private markets to do it, 
okay, well, then we're betting on the government. And at least within my home country, the U.S., we've not shown the political will, even with the Inflation Reduction Act, to do a lot of the decarbonization um, needed. And so even if you believe it's like only the, the government should be should be focusing on this deep skepticism, private markets and incentivizing people with self-interest, well, the Inflation Reduction Act only provides a $200 million with the Replant Act for reforestation. Given the lack of natural regen, given the increased size, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management needs billions of dollars to do the amount of reforestation, not a couple hundred million a year. They need billions a year to do that. And so what is probably the right answer? Again, it's probably not a like only the government should do this or only private markets should do this. It's probably both. Like it's very much like a, a, a crew rowing. Like it's probably not just one monster person rowing and pulling oars. It's probably like all of the people on the team pulling different oars at the same time, focused on the same objective, which is like get to the end. So I think like that would be my like my contention is like is it does need both. We should give the Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management more money. We like we grow for those entities. Uh, they are our customers, but at the same time, like. We talk about what is a landowner experience. And right now that experience is like, we don't have, there's not a lot of options. So that's really where we've built out options for them. Yeah, I like your rowing analogy because it's not, um, it takes both, you know, it's not just one or the other, but I, I, there are times where I feel like uh, we've got both paddling, but it's not in sync. And we're just sitting there splashing a bunch of water right now until we can finally get in sync. Um, whenever you're, uh, in conversations or you're working on kind of tailoring your value prop to someone like a C-suite or a CFO, and you're trying to tie this to business outcomes, which is, you know, that's how decisions get made is tied to business outcomes. What's part of your value prop? I'm sure like compliance and regulation is part of it, but like, what does that conversation look like? What motivates them to action? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, like the, the best buyers, the best actors are like, I need to know like all about the projects and like talk to me about the assurance mechanism. So a lot of conversation we've had. And so, um, and then the second part there is um, what's there, what's, how is this going to move the needle for, for my business? How is, what are the, you know, in product we talk about user stories, but like value prop is another word for that. Like, how is this going to bring more money into my business? Cause I've spent this money and what's my return on investment. So to, to the, to the for, first one, like for the for our landowners, what we provide for them is reforestation and no upfront cost. And they've been impacted by wildfires. Uh, the smartest ones look at it and go, okay, well, natural regen may or may not occur. I'm looking at the severity, et cetera. And we, we look at satellite imagery. We put boots on the ground to take a look and see. And we're like, look, these are the areas. This is several hundred acres, a thousand acres that are hit by high severity and not coming back. Um, so what we communicate to those buyers is, look, there's, as a part of this project, um, we will take care of the full vertical integration. Where does the seed come from? As close to the fire as possible. We do all those collections, we process the cones, we break them down and sell the seed. Um, we grow them in the seedling, grow the seed in the seedlings, uh, into seedlings in the, in the um, greenhouses. And then we, we manage all the subcontractors to get them all planted out of sight. And then this is this is the part, you know, that's the part the landowners care deeply about. The next part is, okay, so once we have the seedlings out there, climate action reserve, 
the uh, methodology provider. So they're, they're doing the same type of work that like U.S. Green Building Council, which is a nonprofit, does for buildings. Like they've created a methodology. You follow it. Uh, they review all your work. You submit it, et cetera. And then you get awarded credits on the registry. Um, and so part of that work is there is a minimum of a one-year wait after planting. And a third-party forester accredited by Climate Action Reserve goes out. They've got some, uh, depends on the state, but they've got some, um, they're a licensed forester or, or otherwise. Um, they're going to review number of different random GIS plots, um, points that are picked because you can't do all several thousand acres. They'll go out there, draw a circle, count how many trees are alive, that they're in the right species, they're the right density, et cetera, that we spoke to. And they'll submit that report to Climate Action Reserve. So, and the reason for this is a lot of volunteer efforts where like trees are planted or otherwise, we don't use volunteers, we use professional tree planter crews. Um, the, the, the trees will put, the roots will get put in the wrong position, the trees will die off, et cetera. And so, we want to make sure the trees are going to live. And one of the big challenges is through the dry season, those roots are, that's what's pulling up all the water. So that's number one. Number two is it's, if there's a hundred years of funded monitoring, uh, there's a right to uh, the uh, a minimum quantity of trees per acre, uh, that 200 trees per acre that's held by uh, a land trust. And so this land trust, these have been around for a real long time. There's people in Sonoma wine country doing them for tax benefits. There's people in Idaho and Montana doing them for keeping several thousand acres together, uh, despite having multiple generations and different families, et cetera. What it is, is it basically is a, a right to go out there and most often boots on the ground every five years for the next hundred plus years and an annual site report gets written. And they have a right to a minimum quantity of trees per acre. You can have mountain biking, you can have hunting and fishing, you can have like yurts and all that stuff out there, whatever you want to do. But it has to have a minimum quantity of trees per acre and it's monitored. Uh, so that is a that is an easement on the property. Um, so those are the things that the CFO, the C-suite, they want to see. And then to the question like, well, what if it burns again? Or what if there's another like technical word as a reversal, ice, insect, fire, et cetera. Well, just like auto and health insurance, um, every project under Climate Action Reserve contributes in a percentage of the credits to a, a pool. Uh, so just like that help, like just like a insurance pool, if there is a reversal, our buyers, which include Shopify, which include um, uh, Time CO2, which include uh, Carbon Title and Real Estate, and we'll talk a little about why they're buying these credits. They are, um, they know that the credits that are coming from a project are coming from the pool. Um, and then also, the land trust has a um, an endowment just like a university. So that's invested in the market, provides a percentage return, 8, 10, 12, something like that per year. That funds their next 100 plus years of monitoring. It's 100 years is a long, long time. Um, so those are all of the things that go into the like the quality and the assurance. In addition to utilizing seed from as close to the fire, that's number one for our buyers. The, the project is quality. So when people toss out the like, is a high quality carbon credit. Like this is the like high quality part of this, which is like, there's a hell of a lot of work that we do to provide all of the boring assurance mechanisms, et cetera. Um, so for folks who, who stuck through that, thank you. Now we'll get into the like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Like we can get into some of the stories of like, why do you buy the credits in the first place? Yeah, that's a great transition. I We talk about like, um, language that explains and then like language that leads to action or like that tipping point where they get it and they're like now they're ready to move like if you think about a group like spotify or some of your other uh partners there 
can you pinpoint the part where not only do they understand it, but they're ready to move on it? Like, okay, now that you've said it that way, or you've shown us that now we're ready to go. Can you think about those moments? Yeah. 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 So, so we've identified, uh, again, six user stories or, or value props. So let's take the first one, Google, uh, Apple, some of the, some folks in the tech space, but not just the tech space, but a lot of other places. If you believe in a 10 X engineer or that like people are the most valuable part of the company because of the knowledge, et cetera. Well, people, there's a lot of survey data out there. will take a 10% reduction in their salary to work for a more sustainable company. And you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying they should have to, the company should be more sustainable just in general, but there is a value prop there for both the recruitment of, of top talent as well as consumers. Consumers clearly pay a, will be willing to pay a premium um, for a more sustainable product because that's the that's the world people want to live in. That's probably the world people want to see. And the biggest frustration for a lot of folks is why is this taking so this so long? Like why can't we build these systems that are that are more sustainable, that are better? So that's number that's you know that's number one. Number two for for Shopify, one of our customers, um, they the in payment processing, the it's a competitive field. Uh, you look at Stripe, you look at Shopify, you look at others. So Shopify has the the Planet app. And to take their the origin story of the like store in the snowboard shop, right? And I want to make it easy for um, a small snowboard shop to have an online store. Well, for that Planet app, you pay a monthly subscription. It'll analyze all of the snowboards you've shipped out uh, and what are the emissions from the shipping, and then it'll it'll match those to uh, carbon credits. And three tiers, you can do nature, you can do nature plus tech, uh, which is more more expensive. And you can do nature plus tech plus frontier. Frontier being like, we don't exactly know how much, we can't really measure the tonnage, but we know we will likely need this technology in the future. And it's up to, it's up to them. So it is a feature that differentiates hmm. Shopify's offering comparative to other uh, payment processors. And so that's a valuable, like, I mean, they're shipping a feature that makes their, their offering more competitive compared to others that are out in the space. That's such a cool um, competitive another, advantage. Don't you think? Yeah. Right. And, and people can go onto the, um, the app store for Shopify and download that today and it exists. Um, so, um, my, my favorite is in real estate. So, um, uh, they're, that for if you're building commercial, residential, industrial warehouses or whatnot, you've got say you've got a multi-billion dollar portfolio. Um, the rate of interest that you're borrowing at manage it, uh, matters a ton um, across that spread, and um, there are lenders out there who will uh, lend at a slightly lower uh, rate of uh, interest if you are building more sustainable buildings. Because again, that is the future they want to see. They want to incentivize it. They're not going to like lose their shirt over it, but they'll give a, 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 sl a small discount and over hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, like that's super material. Well, so they get paid on both ends. One, they get a cheaper cost of capital, but then also you've got this, um, uh, you've got the tech companies and other companies out there trying to recruit their top talent. Well, they're monitoring their scope one, two, and three emissions that the SEC uh, and then also the EU is already passed and very similar to GDPR. Like if you're doing business in Europe, you're going to start to need to disclose your major emissions according to one standard and also track your targets, not from the marketing department where things can quietly go away if they like didn't work out, but from like, a, no, you could get shoot, sued by your shareholders. Um, that's already in the EU. That's coming with the SEC. It may come with California as well. Um, 
So they're, you know, from that perspective, like those companies are looking to lease own by the, um, the most sustainable property they can, both for their talent and customers, as well as their reporting. And so that lender is getting a higher tenant rate. Um, sorry, the, not the lender, the person uh, building the buildings. So you're, they're getting paid on both ends, cheaper cost of capital, higher tenant rate. That's great. Um, and so that's, you know, another user story. So that's, that's only three out of the six. Um, I think the, the last one I'll like sort of land on here is what we've seen the voluntary market, that sort of $1.5 to $2 billion market is trailing the compliance market, which is $900 billion plus. Um, the compliance market, again, to our taxonomy is uh, is a lot more like a, a, a fee or a tax to pollute. Um, and in Europe, what we saw is Ryanair. This is in Harvard Business Review. So not exactly like the liberal bastion of environmentalism, but Harvard Business Review is looking at it and going like, look, carbon's probably your biggest liability. And you look at what Ryanair did in 2020, they bought a ton of credits uh, that they're required to purchase in the EU um, in 2020. And in 2021, the price doubled and they had bought an excess of credits so the analysts on their earnings call were like, if you hadn't done that, like your profit for quarter would have been significantly a risk. So like hat tip, good job. And this is highlighted here. I mean, that's just a hedge. Like people do this with interest, with oil, with steel. So I think that like for what we see is that like from a nature-based perspective, um, right now we, we offer uh, a credit that is uh, effectively, this is the forecast how much the trees will capture over the next 100 plus years. We know this like with very strong certainty because most timber companies out there can very clearly look at a piece of land, analyze the soil, look at the trees and the, the you know the tree rings nearby and say like this is probably how much the trees will grow over the next 25 30 years, which is super important because that's their board feet breaker. Well, we just measure it in a different uh unit which is tons of carbon not board feet. And so we can create that forecast based off of the site, based off the tree species. And that's a forward-looking credit. Well, then over the time, we you know that's a, a $35, $40 credit, we'll call it. And then over time, uh, there's a, the trees will grow. Well, you send people out with, with tape measures, I'm clearly simplifying, but like you send people out, they measure it and uh, you get a, uh, we'll call it a $15 to $20 um, fee to, to send people out to do that. You get an ex post credit and that credit is how much the trees have grown. So you end up with call it 50, 60 bucks. Bloomberg NEF expects that trees uh, or sorry, that carbon credits will cost around $200 by 2030 in two of their three scenarios. If you bought something at 50 and you sell it at 200, most people can tell you like, great, you're looking pretty good. Or you've, you've retired it at 200 because you're now complying with the ICC and the EU, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where Harvard Business Review comes in and is like, look, carbon's a liability. It's on your balance sheet. The like regulations coming, the accounting systems are coming. So you can, you know, from that forecast be like, look, we've paid for the capture of 100,000 tons of carbon over the next 100 years, and then exercise that credit at 15 and be like, it's not only did we did we see that, we actually outperformed the forecast because the forecast is super conservative. We get a couple X, you know, we, we get not only what we forecast, but also maybe some extra. And, and um, you know, it's an option and an exercise effectively, very similar to a stock. Yeah. So cool. a lot of that is like super wonky, 
but like this is what moves the needle on climate this is what pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and does it with with trees and we're going to see that with oceans we're going to see that with soil we're going to see that with director carbon capture so on and so forth so i'm well, i'm excited about that aspect of things no don't apologize for any kind of uh, wonkiness because that's what we need, right? We're not going to figure this out without it. So we need people who appreciate the wonk, uh, have action behind it, and there's good intentions and good faith behind all efforts, right? And we need them on all varieties with all different time horizons that we're looking at. Hey everyone, we've learned a lot from this podcast series and we've put the good stuff in a handful of PDF frameworks. It's topics like messaging, channel strategy, and market fit. You can grab them at nativedigital.com slash resources.